You're listening to a podcast from 702. And we've got Dr. Chris Smith coming up in just a moment. So get your questions ready. Uh, 011-883-0702, 072-702-1702. That's where you can WhatsApp or voice note us or SMS us 31702. 702. The Naked Scientist. Ah, the naked scientist. This is, you know, hi there. Hi there, Chris, or Dr. Smith. Hello. Dr. Chris Smith. Hello. It's Yuveka in Forela Bukhilema Bocha this afternoon. And, you know, I'm mostly, I'm very happy when they ask me to stand in on a Monday because this is one of my favorite parts of the show. <laughs> I, I love speaking oh. to you. I do. I do. So um, I hope you're well. I hope that your world is standing more still than ours did in the early hours of yesterday <laughs> morning. <laughs> when, yeah, so I gather. Yes. Uh, so, so the first question that's coming up for you already is from uh, Artimek who says, Hi Dr. Chris in 702 Why do earthquakes and tremors occur at night? They are very rare during the day. Is that a fact? No, I think perhaps we're more likely to notice them at night and the reason we might be more likely to notice them at night especially if they're really subtle ones is because we're all standing still we might be lying in bed and we notice our, our, our world being disturbed because there's peace and quiet and suddenly there's not yeah. When we're on the move, there's lots of things going on. There are things like mining causing explosions and miniature tremors. There's lots of traffic around. You're much less likely to notice it. Mm. But small tremors, you will notice more at night. But there's, the Earth does not have a stopwatch. It doesn't know what time of day it is. And the reason you have earthquakes at all is in the case of South Africa, probably 90 plus percent of the time it's because of mining. Mm. That's the main cause. Mm. But also, Africa has a lot of geology yeah. and there are volcanoes and extinct volcanoes in South Africa, which and in the environs of South Africa, which will affect the local geology. There's also the African rift, which affects the way the continent moves around. Mm. So all of these things are storing energy and there's stress building up in the ground, either as magma retreats deeper into the ground or is pumped into areas within the ground, applying pressure. And so this causes the fault to stress and it will store this energy like an elastic band being progressively more and more stretched until it gets to the point where it can't store any more energy and something has to give yeah. and suddenly it goes. Now that does not matter whether it's daytime mm. or nighttime. Mm. That energy is just being stored relentlessly until a point at which it can give is reached. But you're more likely to notice a minor yes. small quake during the night time for the reasons I've given. Yeah, well, that's fascinating, Chris, because um, I, I think Mandy had a, had a guest on earlier who said, well, you know, we were saying it's because it could be because of mining, but considering I think this was just about 10 kilometers below the surface, very unlikely that it was. But now what you're saying makes more sense. And I mean, I'm sure many people like I am surprised to learn that, yes, with Africa, when it comes to things like dormant volcanic um, activity or whatever it was, you wouldn't think of it as a continent that actually would even have those or had those before, you know, the big boom or whatever it was happened? Well, the Drakensberg Mountains are uh, volcanic. And, of course, the reason that South Africa is home to the richest gold reserves in the world, there's about a third of the world's remaining gold that we think is still to be recovered, is under South Africa, most of it not far from Johannesburg. And the reason that there's so much gold already out of South Africa is because a few billion years ago, there were lots of volcanoes all over the area, of the north mm. part of the country and they were bringing from deep within the earth a whole range of heavy metals including gold depositing them on the surface and they were then eroding and being washed into what would have been a shallow ocean roughly where johannesburg is so ah. as a result of that there is there is lots of gold deposited far higher up than it would be and that's the giveaway that once upon a time 
if you were to go back far enough, you would find an ocean where most of inland South Africa is and a huge number of volcanoes spewing out gold and other things at the margins of that ocean. Wow. Okay. Well, you learn something every day. Thanks for that. So I'm not going to monopolize you. I'm going to get straight to some voice notes. Let's hear what everybody else wants to know from you today. Hi, Dr. Chris. So my question is, why are sharks drawn to blood? Um, is there something in the blood, like a chemical that draws them? Ooh, okay. So <laughs> why are okay. sharks, sharks drawn to blood? Well, many sharks are a predatory fish, predatory species, which are looking for their next meal. They're a big animal, some of them. They have to serve their metabolism. And they're looking for something that's going to give them a nice big dose of, of calories. And other meat is a good source of that. Where do mm. you get meat? Well, blood go, where blood comes from. Yeah. So if you tune into the smell of blood, which these animals can detect from a very long way away, why chase down an animal and burn off loads of calories trying to catch it when it might be faster than you in the first place? Mm. When, in fact, you can find something that's already wounded or dead and easy pickings, especially if you're bigger than what had already tried to catch it because they'll just run away scared and they'll leave it to you. But so sharks are very attuned to the smell of blood. They detect it with their noses mm. and they can detect down to parts per billion or less in the water of just the molecules that are in blood. And they can resolve the direction it's coming from. They swim backwards and forwards across the water and they're testing, is the smell getting stronger or weaker? And they then change their direction accordingly so they can home in on the source. And that's obviously where they're going to find lunch, mm. if they're lucky. Mm -hmm. and, and I mean, considering that blood is in the water, so it's kind of mixed up with the water, I think that also the second part of that question, and you mentioned molecules and all of that, but what is it that's actually in the blood that they are so in tune with that they can smell however far away it might be? Well, there are thousands of different molecules in blood when we what we call blood is a cocktail of chemicals and it's almost certainly not just one individual molecule that the sharks will be homing in on but the constellation of molecules which has that distinct when present together flavor for a shark in the same way that you can resolve different smells into their individual chemicals but if you mix them together they have that bouquet that tells you, ah, this is the smell of a rose or ah. this is the smell of something, I don't know, lemons or something. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's very rarely just one particular molecule. It is the constellation of those molecules at all different concentrations that the animals are probably sensing and they're able to, tra to home in on and track. Okay, all right. So I hope that answers your question there. Let's head to uh, Tembile and Glen Vista has a question. Hi, Tembile. Hi, Rick, how are you? I'm well, thanks. Hi. What's your question? Yes, quickly, uh, yes. I wanted to find out I'm over 60, eating very healthy, walking 14, 15 days, four times a week, no red meat except once in probably two months, all those nice things, and doing two yearly mammograms. I wanted to find out if there are any other markers, tests that one can do and, you know, to see if there's any chance of cancer. There isn't any in the family. Yeah, are there any test markers that one can look out for uh, in order to prevent the onset of cancer? I, I hope I've answered mm. uh, completely the question. Thank you, eh? All right, Tembile. So, Chris, um, yeah, a rather complicated one, but hopefully you have some explanation for Tembile there. One of the best markers we have in medicine is the family history. And one of the most important questions any doctor can ask a patient is, does anything run in your family. And that puts us onto things that do tend to crop up because many, many diseases 
do have a genetic underpinning, but they also have an environmental underpinning. And people tend to live in the same sort of environment as their family. They obviously have the same genes as their family. So this can be a really strong guide towards what is or isn't likely to happen to you. Then you have to say, well, putting that to one side, how likely is cancer to happen to an individual picked at randomly from a population? And the answer is very likely. In fact, the evidence is that one person in every two listening to this program will have a personal run-in with cancer because it's the leading cause of death in pretty much all populations mm. around the world. Mm. And for that reason, since it's you've got to die of something, then you're saying, well, is there anything I can do to not die of cancer? Well, it's going to claim 50% of us. So therefore, you have to just ask, well, well, how do I stay healthiest for longest, which is really the aim of modern medicine. It's not all about defeating disease forever. It's about putting off the inevitable to give us the best health span, not just lifespan. It's okay. quality over quantity. Mm. So really, the best guide is, as you have correctly done, to rule out things that are common in your family, because those are the ones to keep an eye on, and then minimize the risk factors that come from the environment. Exercise is an excellent way to stay healthy in a range of different ways. Eating a healthy diet is an excellent way to reduce the risk of a raft of diseases, including cancer, and you're doing those things. Maintaining a healthy weight and also screening for the really common stuff like breast cancer, which kills one woman in about 10 to one woman in 12 in different populations. Given the, the commonness of that particular cancer and you're screening for that, I'd, I'd say that you're doing all of the right things and that you should focus on enjoying a good quality of life, which you clearly are doing, and um, and and be happy with that. Because at the end of the day, when I went to medical school, they gave us um, a, a document uh, when we we're doing one particular part of the course, and it said on the front of it, a healthy person is one who has been inadequately screened. The point they're making is mm. all of us have mm. something lurking in our in mm. our pathology closet, and if you look hard enough, you'll find something wrong with everybody. And so, therefore, at, at what point do you begin to say, well, ignorance really is bliss? Yeah, yeah. All right, Dr. Doom, I think we need a short break from you after that. Some of us need to just go and get some air. We'll be back with uh, Chris Smith, the Naked Scientist. Send us your questions or call us on one one eight eight three zero seven zero two or voice note or WhatsApp us on 72 702. The Naked Scientist. All right. Well, you have less than five minutes to get your questions in to The Naked Scientist. Dr. Chris Smith with us on this Monday afternoon. I'm Yuveka Rangapa in for Relibokhile Mabocha. And, uh, Doc, we have a question here. Somebody wants to know what creates echoes in the air when somebody is shouting? Sound is what you produce when you're shouting. And sound is a compression wave. So when I'm speaking to you, I am making vibrations with my vocal cords, which come up to my mouth as pressure changes, puffs of air, which then echo round inside my mouth, amplifying some frequencies and not others. But basically, those puffs of air are coming out of my mouth with certain shapes because of my lip movements, and they're compressing the air in front of my face. And the molecules then move, bash into the molecules next door, which bash into the molecules next door, and the sound propagates through the air at the speed of sound until it reaches your ears and the system in your ears then picks up the vibrations and makes you hear them. But if instead of you in the way of that sound, I put a hard, solid, unyielding surface mm. like a brick wall or a pane of glass or a really hard floor, you can just imagine you go into an empty house, no furniture, anything mm. like that, very hard surfaces. The sound waves hit the wall 
and bounce straight off like you're throwing a tennis ball against the wall. Mm. And when that happens, because it's an inelastic collision, the sound waves hit the wall and the molecules bounce back, starting the sound wave afresh. So they come back at you. But because sound travels through the air, hits the wall and travels back, and it does that at a finite speed, there is a delay between you producing the sound, it going to the hard reflective surface and then coming back again. And that delay is what we call the echo. And you can demonstrate this when, when we go on a boat and we use sonar. You send a sound wave through the water from the bottom of a boat. It goes to the seafloor or onto an object underwater. Mm -hmm. And then reflections of that sound wave come back. And you can work out how far away they are because you know how fast the sound is traveling in the water. And by counting how long it takes the sound waves to get back to you, you know roughly what distance they've traveled. So therefore, you know how far they must have gone to come back and therefore how far underneath your boat the bottom is or whatever object you're trying mm -hmm. to avoid. And it's the same with an echo in the air. Okay, the same. All right, just enough time maybe for one more voice note. Let's take that one. Good afternoon, Dr. Chris. It's Lorraine here. I wanted to find out, is there anything that you don't know? Because you seem to be answering everything to the call. And I'm so impressed. Love you, the show. Bye. <laughs> well, I've asked you this I'm before. <laughs> Lorraine, you're my number one best friend and fan. I'm so grateful. Um, <laughs> the answer is, yeah. Uh, the reason we have uh, a job in science is because science is all about asking questions. It's not about having answers. Yeah. Um, there's so much we don't know. Yeah. Me personally, there's loads I don't know. And if I don't know the answer, I will never be afraid to say I don't know because yeah. then I go and learn something. There's no such thing as a bad question. And if ever anyone notices I've said something wrong, do please tell me because I can't know everything and I can't get it right every time because I'm human. So I always welcome feedback from people who spot additional things I should have said or additional things I could have said or things I could have said better. So do please tell me. I do my best, but I'm not perfect. Well, in all the time that I've been listening, I've never heard you say you don't know. But thank you so much, Dr. Chris Smith.